Hey, welcome to Lighthouse. We are thrilled that you would spend this holiday weekend with us worshiping God. And if you're watching online, welcome. We especially appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to be part of us. If you get a chance while you're online, just open up a little chat window and say hi to Jason and his team and let them uh, love on you just a little bit uh, through technology. And if you're here today as our guest, thank you. We are especially honored that you would be with us. Any of us can take out a Connect card, one of the cards that you were given, fill that out, drop it in the collection plate when that's passed in a little bit. It's just our way of connecting with you and just sharing what God is doing in our midst. My name is Dan Morris. I'm uh, on staff here at Lighthouse. I'm filling in for our senior pastor, Frank Briggs, this morning, who is on vacation, but he will be back next week to share a, a sermon on the vision of this church, the future of this congregation. God's been doing some wondrous things through him and in him, um, especially this last year or so. And so it'll be exciting to hear uh, as Frank talks about that. So I hope you will come back next week for that. You know, uh, about two weeks ago, I celebrated my 54th birthday. Woohoo! Yeah, four, yeah. And, and I, I've, I've always heard People say this sort of thing that I'm about to say here in a little bit, and, and I always got it, but I didn't always get it, okay? You understand? Until just recently, really. But when I was in my 20s, you know, I, I could work hard all day. I mean, like manual labor all day and stay up late at night and go to bed, wake up the next morning and do it all again. It was great. When I got to be my 30s, you know, I work hard all day, stay up late at night, that kind of thing, go to bed. And when I woke up in the morning, I would groan just a little bit before I got out of bed. But once I was out of bed, I was going again. It was wonderful. When I got to be my 40s, work hard all day, go to bed at night, wake up, and I, I groaned and I, and I moaned all day long. You know, it just, it hurt. But now that I'm in my 50s, I groan and moan all day long, and I haven't done anything the day before, right? You, some, some of you can relate. The others that can't, you will one of these days. Trust me. We live in a groan-worthy world, don't we? All you got to do is open uh, your, your uh, Facebook, open the news, you know, uh, just look at your own life, some of the stuff that goes on in our lives, and you just, you just groan sometimes. I mean, we come by this very spiritually, really. The Apostle Paul, writing the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 8, talks about this. He says, all of creation is groaning as it waits in anticipation for, for this part of existence to be over and the next one to come into being. And he says, not only all of creation, but we as believers ourselves, we, we groan in anticipation of one day finally, fully being adopted as sons and daughters of the king. And he says, and if that's not enough, even the Holy Spirit is up in heaven at this very moment, groaning on our behalf because of what we're going through now as we wait. This is a groan-worthy world. But that's not the end of the story. Because Paul wasn't finished with Romans chapter 8 when he talked about the groaning. He went on to talk about something else. And we're going to look at that something else today. In fact, many people think that Romans is perhaps the greatest book in the New Testament. 
And many people think that Romans chapter 8 is, is the greatest chapter in that greatest book. Well, the verses we're going to look at today, many people think are the greatest verses in the greatest chapter in the greatest book of the New Testament. It's exciting that we're going to look at today. And we are going to hear four words, four words that if we can get them to go from ink on a page or pixels on a screen and we can get them into our head and into our heart and begin to live like these four words are true, if we begin to lean into and live these four words, our lives will be changed. And that's not just preacher hyperbole. That's not just, you know, marketing verbiage to say that your life will change. I'm serious. If we can get these four words into our lives, your life will be different. What are those four words? God is for us. God is for us. Would you just say that with me on the count of three? One, two, three. God is for us. Now you said that pretty good, but I'm telling you by the end of this service, you're going to be wanting to shout it out because God is for us. We can't deny it. If we begin to live into it, our lives will be changed. Just notice what Paul says in these verses. Romans chapter eight, starting in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? In fact, I tell you what, why don't you stand with me, please, as I read these verses? Because these are amazing verses. What shall we say to these things, all these things about groaning, about all the difficulties that Paul's been talking about from Romans chapter 1 all the way now to Romans chapter 8, all those things that can go wrong in this existence, what shall we say to those things? If God is for us, now don't get hung up on the word if, right? Because sometimes that sounds questionable, doubtful, right? But is it, this is an if of certainty. It is an if that, that we use it like this. We, we use the if in the same way. Sometimes we say it, but we mean a certain thing. It's like this. Um, if I'm going to have dinner tonight, I might as well have a T-bone steak, right? Or if, if, if I got to get rid of my Ford Pinto, I might as well buy a Cadillac right? So we say it with certainty that something better is awaiting us. So if God is for us, who could ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Everything in this life that we need, everything in the world to come. Now, he's not saying I'm going to give you a Cadillac necessarily, but he's saying I'm going to give you what you need. And then he continues, who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? It is God, after all, who justifies, who makes right, who declares us innocent and worthy and lovable. And then he continues, who then will condemn us? Well, no one really is what he's saying because Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he's the one who was raised. And he's the one that's at the right hand of God who is interceding for us. He's speaking up for us. He's vouching for us. And then, who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? What is it going to be? Trouble, calamity, or persecution, or hunger, or nakedness, or danger, or death? All those things that we groan about, is that what's going to keep us from God's love? No, is what he's going to say in a couple of verses. Watch this. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Are you convinced of that? I want you to be convinced of that because the Apostle Paul is convinced of that. This is what he says. In fact, read it with me out loud as if 
you're convinced by this. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's ours to claim. We can be confident about that. I want you to imagine a courtroom. Just picture yourself in a courtroom. You're standing there before the judge. Now, this is not just any courtroom, mind you. This is the the biggest, most immaculate courtroom that you've ever been in. This is a cosmic courtroom. This is the throne room of God. And you find yourself on judgment day, standing with a multitude of people before the very throne of God, him dressed in his royal robe, sitting behind the judicial bench, the books of life opened before him. And you have come to the day in which you must give a reckoning for the life you've lived, the words you've said, the thoughts that you have dwelt upon. And you stand before this throne of God as naked as Adam and Eve were. There is no, there are no olive branches. There are no olive leaves to cover anything. You are as vulnerable and open as can be. And off to the left of this judicial bench stands the accuser, the prosecutor, the liar, the deceiver, Satan himself. And if you don't think that he spent some time up in the throne room of God, just read the book of Job and you will see that he spent time there accusing God's people. And he's there standing to the left of God. And you step up when your name is called and Satan rises that deceiver, that liar, that cheat. And he points his craggly finger at you and he says, this is Charlie. Let me tell you about the life Charlie lived, God. Let me tell you about the lies he told, the lust that was in his heart, the deceit, the scheming. You remember that time, God, when he denied you? You remember that time when he used your name as a curse word? You remember how he lived his life, God, at times? If, if there is justice in this cosmos, then this man deserves the fires of hell. But what? I don't know if Satan doesn't get it or if he hopes it's not true. He's living in denial. I don't know. But he's demanding justice in a courtroom where the justice is slanted, where if there was justice, the judge should probably recuse himself from passing judgment because the judge is guilty of bias, of having a conflict of interest. Because you see, God is for us. And God has chosen Charlie. And the irony is, is this great accuser, this liar, for the first time in all of eternity possibly, is actually speaking the truth. We stand before God deserving condemnation. But Paul begins Romans chapter 8 with the assurance, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there's a reason for that. God is for us. Just watch 
look at what Paul said again in Romans chapter 8. Why is he for us? Why is he biased? How does he have a vested interest in us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? That phrase, gave him up, probably should have highlighted that. that that's, a, that's a term, that's a word that is used in the Gospels numerous times. Sometimes it's translated betrayed. Judas gave up Jesus. He betrayed Jesus. The Pharisees, the Sadducees gave up Jesus to prosecution. Pilate and Herod gave up Jesus to the cross. But what, what, what Paul is reminding us right here is, is, yes, all those people had a role to play, but the truth is God chose us. He gave up his son so that he could have you and could have me. He chose that. He's biased because he's for us so that he can give us everything that we need. And then the passage continues. Who dare would accuse us whom God has chosen as his own? After all, it's God who justifies. God, this judge, is biased, and he's biased in our favor. God is for us. He wants to choose us. He wants us to choose him. Satan can make all the accusations he wants to make, but this biased God says, that's my child. I chose him. I chose her. She's mine. And even though there's truth in what Satan says, God chose us because God is for us. And he continues, who then is going to condemn us? Think about this. We've got Satan on this side. But on the right-hand side of God, there stands Jesus, our defender, the one who's advocating for us. Christ Jesus, the one who died, but more than that was raised. He's the one at the right hand of God who's indeed interceding for us. Yes, God, I know what Satan is saying is true, but when, that, when Charlie told that lie, that's on me. When Charlie stole, that, that was me. When Charlie lusted, that was, that was me, God. I take his place. I'm interceding. I'm defending him. And he's doing that for each and every one of us. Jesus is interceding. So who in the world is going to condemn us? Who in the universe? Well, the answer is no one. Notice how the passage continues. Who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or calamity or persecution or hunger or nakedness or danger or death? None of that. None of those difficulties. So often we think they are. We think that when we go through troubles that maybe that's a sign that God is against us, but God is for us. He's not against us. Sometimes when bad things happen, I think, why is God punishing me? God may be disciplining us, but sometimes Satan's after us. God is for us. And we need to live boldly into those words. We need to lean into them and declare that God is for us. And nothing in this world, no matter what groaning we go through, is going to separate us from God's love. And that's why he says in this next verse, no, no one in all these things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
Not conquerors because of the good life we've lived or how wonderful we are. We're conquerors through his love. That's what makes us conquerors. And you understand the word conquer, right? It's the word victor, victory, winner. We are winners. In the Greek, it's the word Nike. You know, they, the company stole the greatest word there is. There's Nike. But, but in being Nike here, we're not about uh, uh, overpriced shoes and shirts and shorts. We're about us. It's about us. God made us victors, winners, Nikes. But we're more than these winners. In fact, he uses a compound word. It's, it's hyper Nike, uber Nike. We are over the top winners. Because God has declared it because he's biased because God is for us. Nothing's going to separate us from the love of God. Wow. How are we to even respond to something like that? That God would choose us, even us. I think the only way to really respond is to say, my God, my God, how great thou art. How great thou art. When I think that God is, his son not sparing, would send him to die on the cross. I I scarce can take it in. I can't comprehend it. That he would put his son on that cross and and that on that cross, my burden, my failures, gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin, mine. How else should we respond other than calling out, my God, how great thou art, how great thou art. So God is for us and there is nothing that is going to separate us from that kind of love. A story is told of uh, Jack Benny. Uh, Some of you may have heard of Jack Benny. Um, Some of you are old enough to remember Jack Benny. Maybe not all of us, though. Um, He was a very shy guy. He was a well-known comedian in the early days of TV. Very popular, but he was an extremely shy guy. And there was this girl named Sadie that he had bumped into throughout the years from time to time that had kind of caught his eye, but he was always too shy to ask her out. Well, eventually he learned that he and Sadie worked in the same building. And uh, being afraid to ask her out, he didn't know what to do until he came up with the idea of sending her a single red rose. And so he sent her a single red rose, no note card, no signature. And the next day he sent her a red rose. And the next day he sent her a red rose. And it was driving her crazy. She didn't know who it was from. So Sadie, not being very shy very outspoken, called up the florist and said, who's sending me these roses? And they said, well, it's Jack Benny. And so she confronts him in the halls of their building one day and said, why do you keep sending me these roses? And he him haws around a little bit and he says, well, I, it's just, I've just been wanting to ask you out, but I've, I've been a little afraid to. And she says, well, let's go out. And so they did. And they double dated with her cousin, who was one of the Marx brothers, And they went, of all places, to a Jewish Seder for their date. And it worked because they fell in love. For 48 years, they were married. Now, it was not 
uh, an idyllic postcard kind of marriage. There were some ups and downs. There was lots of turmoil. There was lots of groaning in the relationship, but they loved each other deeply, and they stayed together for 48 years until on the day after Christmas, 1975, Jack Benny died from cancer. And on the day after that, a red rose appeared in the home. It was delivered, but it was kind of lost in all the other flowers and the hoopla of the funeral and the service, and so his wife didn't notice it right away. But then the next day, another red rose arrived, and the next day, another one. And she writes, and she says, it was several weeks before I began to realize that something's going on. They keep sending me these red roses. And she asked around, and no one knew who they were coming from, and then she had an idea. She called the florist and said, who keeps sending me these red roses? And they said, well, your husband, Jack Benny, said to send them. He said, well, maybe you haven't heard, but he's passed away. He said, oh, no, ma'am, we've heard that. But in the weeks just before he died, he came to us and he made provisions that you would receive a red rose every day for the rest of your life. Hmm. A love that never fails. A love that goes on and on. That's the love that God has for us. It's relentless because God is for us. And so we see again this final section of the passage. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, and I know we think of death as being that great divider that separates us, but what Paul is reminding us is God's love doesn't even end. It doesn't die with death. It goes on. Neither angels nor demons. There's no spiritual warfare that's going to make God stop loving you. He's going to love you through it all. Neither present nor the future. There's nothing that you have done in your past that's going to surprise God. There's nothing that you're going to do in the future that's going to make God stop loving you or make God stop loving you. After all, God is for us. He loves us just as much right now as he ever will and as he ever has. Because God is for us. Neither present nor future, nor any powers, there's no authority, there's no strength that's going to separate us. Neither height nor depth. You can run, you can hide, you can try to abandon God, but God is going to pursue you. He's going to hunt you down. He's going to chase you up to the highest mountain or down to the deepest valley because his love never fails. It does not end because God is for us. Neither height nor depth. And then Paul can't think of anything else to say, so he just throws in the kitchen sink and he says, says nor anything else in all creation is going to separate us from God's great love. Nothing can separate us from that. Nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Nothing. Another story is told of a little boy growing up in Louisiana on a farm. And it was summertime, and so he asked his mom if he could go swimming in their pond, and she said, sure, she would be right out there. She's watching him from the kitchen window as he pulls off his shirt and his shoes, and he jumps into the pond, and she's watching him. And to her horror, she sees what at first she thought was a log, but turned out to be an alligator in the water with her son. And she begins to scream and run out the back door, swim, swim, swim to me. And the son begins to swim to her. And just as she gets to him, the alligator gets to him too. And the alligator latches onto his legs and she latches onto his arms. And a mighty tug of war begins to ensue. The alligator 
obviously stronger than she is, but she's an impassioned mom, not willing to let go of her son. About that time, the dad gets home. He sees what's happening. He pulls the gun out of the back of his truck and he goes and he shoots the alligator. They rush the boy to the hospital where for two months he undergoes surgeries and reconstructive surgeries, trying to repair the legs. He gets to go home, but he still has a lot of healing to do. And he will always walk with a limp. Newspapers hear about this and they come and interview the boy. And they ask during the interview, can we see the scars on your legs from the alligator? And he said, well, sure. And so he pulls up his pajama legs and shows them the scars that will forever be there. And then he says, do you want to see my other scars? And they said, sure, what other scars are you talking about? And he pulled up the sleeves of his pajamas and he showed them the scars from his mother's fingernails that would not let go. You get it, right? God is for us. And nothing is going to cause him to let go. Say it with me one more time. One, two, three. God is for us. Don't forget it. Would you now stand and let's sing and celebrate a love that will never let go?